Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Zabani. This is a podcast event brought to you by the Statesmanship Program, where we plan to bring atypical topics in an unconventional manner. This week at Zabani, we talk about the current state of the Indian economy and the economies worldwide. I am Mehul Joshi, an editor at the Statesmanship Program. I am a first-year economics student from Mumbai, and I shall be serving as the moderator for this event. Today, we have with us Mr. Siddharth Shinghai. Mr. Siddharth Shinghai is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Ironhole Capital. Sir is a graduate from um, the Fordham Gabeli School of Business in Finance. Sir has also worked as a consultant and analyst at multiple investment capital firms. Sir, we are honored to have you here with us today at Zabani. This week, no. thank you. Um, so this week we're talking about um, economies worldwide in this um, in this episode of Zabani. So we'll start off. Um, the COVID nineteen pandemic hit the world economy while they were already reeling from an ongoing ca- recession. Um, governments worldwide have been grappling to respond to the same. The Indian economy, at specific, shrunk by 23.9 percent in August 2020, and um, the Indian government also expressed it in its intention of dealing with financial obligations through active God or force majeure measures. Uh, so, in such situations, how has the global market responded? to indian uh, e- indian government's economic response and um, what have been the multiple views that the global market holds with respect to indian government's response yeah so i mean the indian government really can do two things right lower the interest rates and print money they only have those two levers so they're doing what they can obviously printing money uh, you know is not without uh consequences it will have you know it could lead to inflation you know uh, and you know predicting anything on the macro side of things is always very difficult so for me to say you know if you do x y will happen um that's not necessarily true like we printed a lot of money here in the united states in the great recession of 08 and we did not suffer any inflation right so um the indian government's response i think is um uh, adequate um they've been forced to take these measures uh, against their will i would say and uh, you know it, it's not going to be pretty i would say there's no other uh alternative where you have both gdp growth and you also keep the interest rates down you know you don't do stimulus and you know we were unfortunately stuck with uh, a really terrible disease that is pretty you know infectious and uh Uh, nobody expected that but you're right you know we were already not in very good shape pre covid um there was some economic slowdown um and you know i think this was expected i would say more or less eventually the economy will have to you know catch up with reality it cannot always do well that being said i don't think it's going to be you will see a recovery right eventually it always has happened you know, look at two history 200 years history of united states or you know the the 50 or so year history of india and the financial markets and the economy they will eventually recover right yes um so it's a matter of time but we will have to obviously it will get worse before it gets better i would say 
makes complete sense so we see developing countries like india still you know struggling to respond and for that matter even the de- developed countries like the united states of america have been uh, you know facing severe difficulties for the same so while the pandemic still continues countries like burkina faso have been grappling to respond to this pandemic with food insecurity becoming an extremely pertinent issue in these countries um, something that the food and agriculture department of the un has also reported so what policy instruments do governments in low income countries have in order to ensure food security and basic subsistence in times like that of a pandemic See, so the problem is is more systemic, right? Um, Burkina Faso or any other low-income country, and you know, um, even India about thirty, forty years ago was, you know, you know, we were ravaged with uh, famines and uh, things of that nature ourselves. The, the solution really is that everybody makes enough money to, you know, be able to sustain themselves, and it's not reliant on government aid. That's the long-term definitive solution. And that's the, the best way to implement that is by having a capitalistic economy, right? Low regulations, ease of business formation, access to capital for entrepreneurs. And, you know, it has plenty of natural resources, right? That's not a problem. Um, yeah, educated labor might be a problem, right? So you have to obviously educate people, but there's no, economic policy as such that you can devise that will take care of this because this is going to happen again and again and again. The only way to get rid of it completely, right, is by following, you know, having a capitalistic economy. Because, you know, if you remember, China was a superpower, you know, uh, in the 1800s, right? They had a huge population. U.S. by comparison was, you know, a tiny tiny country, both in terms of GDP and actual population. But U.S. had one thing going for it, which was capitalism, right? China, on the other hand, did. So even with their huge, huge population and natural resource and everything else, the tiny population of the United States was able to, you know, you know be able to do well for itself over the next couple of centuries. People were just as smart in China. Uh, natural resources were just as many, but the system was capitalism. That was the difference, right? So as you mentioned, the, the problem with uh, most of those countries you know, where you have a sizable percentage of the population below the poverty line is the government is, you know, either has really poor regulations that do not support business formation, or, you know, they just punish you for being either entrepreneurial or, you know, uh, you want to start your own thing, any kind of business that will eventually employ people. It's not, you know, encouraged. In in the States or, you know, even some of the other developed economies, even some like Japan, uh, that is not the case, right? So systematically, it's poor governance, but it's also heavy-handed regulations and uh, not much focus on business formation because you need to get people to work for themselves and earn that income, right, based on merit. And uh, once they have that system in place, I think uh, it will take time, possibly a decade or so. Um, But I think uh, that's perhaps in the long term the only solution that I see. 
excomplete and so so with respect to even capitalist economies or be it a capitalist economy or socialist economies like china itself pandemic comes at a time wherein our healthcare systems something that has been very well you know recognized has been that our healthcare systems are fundamentally flawed something even in pro pre covid times if you look at the us election of 2016 the the trump administration has been very clear about one thing that they are opposed to the obama cares and there has been much debate not just in the states but worldwide about healthcare systems so with covid 19 hitting these systems with uh, with an unprecedented burden we are seeing the flaws of these systems being more visible than ever in such time um, you know one thing that we've all recognized is that a universal healthcare is somewhere a requirement of the hour wherein countries like uk um, france which already have a universal healthcare have been better off in this entire procedure so with respect to say universal healthcare and convergence of information technology into health sector what reforms do you think are needed in the health sector right now and how can governments go about the same so india and us are vastly different when it comes to healthcare right in india you typically don't have a lot of r and d it's basically taking the formulations that were developed elsewhere other than us or other countries and then just mass producing them right so we essentially do mass scale manufacturing of drugs we do not develop them and that's not necessarily a bad thing right uh the problem is our competitors china if you look at uh, almost 90% of all chemicals that are used for you know formation of these drugs they come from china for pretty much you know pretty much all of the world really you know they have the lead in manufacturing that we wish to emulate so covid i think as as you rightly mentioned right uh, president trump is looking to obviously de-risk some of that supply chain that exists in china you might see i mean we should look at that as an opportunity for india to step up its manufacturing and uh, so it's not um, a bad thing overall in the long run obviously um in the short run um the issue of healthcare is sort of controversial because um you do have to pay for it right you pay for it collectively right um you get taxed you know it's not uh, it's not free in that sense um and what is the best possible way to do it like do you want to have private companies right take care of people's health which is the case here uh, in united states i mean um or do you want all of it to be uh, all of it to be you know somewhat governed by politics uh, to an extent you know you don't want government intervention uh to the extent that it causes drug prices to balloon up so that is a tricky uh conversation should we privatize it then if you privatize it you you know some people will be obviously get it off right so i think a, a solution would be somewhere in between where you don't have this complete socialist uh uh foundation right where the government takes care of everybody right because the government is not really good at running businesses right and you do want to have competition so that you keep the drug prices down at the same time um you do want to have some amount of regulations for private healthcare companies so they can't just you know spike up drug prices as they do in, in the united states so 
I don't think any country has figured out healthcare perfectly, to be honest. Uh, but solution would be a hybrid. You know, you'll have someone of government supervision over private pharma that enables both competitive prices, but not, you know, uh, almost exploitation of people who do need it. Makes complete sense. Or um, a mixed economic structure is somewhere you find a balance between both of them. With so you know you mentioned about how the U.S. healthcare systems is well in your answer, right? So with the U.S. with the people of America going to vote for their next president in the month of November itself, um, something that's of great conversation now is what does this hold for the global market? What does a possible Trump re-election have with respect to global markets and the American economy itself? And what does uh, the election of Vice President Biden mean if uh, for the global market? Um, so if you look at long term, right, 10, 15, 20 years, the only one uh, factor that would determine the health of the economy, in my view, would be the tax rate, right? Because if you have extraordinarily high tax rate, you sort of deter from business formation, right? You... Uh, you cannot have tax rate in the high 60s or 70s and also have people take on additional amount of risk, you know, they risk uh, failure, they risk putting all that time for nothing to then part away with 60, 70% of their earnings. You, a lot of people will just never, you know, uh, get started and uh, you don't want that. That being said, uh, you also want to tax people fairly. So, so we're all paying our fair share, right? Um, I think that is going to be the key difference. Apart from that, if you look at, you know, economy over long periods of time, 25, 30, 50 years, it really doesn't matter who the president is, right? It, what matters are, what are the economic policies for the long run? And as long as you have a capitalistic system where people are incentivized to work, do the best they can, and they get paid in proportion to that, right? Where the right to property, right? You don't want somebody to take away a house that you work so hard for or your you know, belongings or, you know, you don't want anarchy. You, don't, you want safety in society. As long as we, you know, any country takes care of those things, has some amount of social safety net at the bottom, right? Take care of people who are disabled you know, or just unlucky. We take care of them and then you, over that you have capitalism to ensure that people incentivize to do the right thing, I think the economy is gonna do well. So um, as far as if Mr. Biden wins or President Trump wins, I think that's, um, apart from the taxation, which I don't think is gonna be as crazy as people expect it to, even under President Biden, um, it shouldn't have a big effect on the economy. Makes sense. Sir. So basically, like both Trump and Biden to an extent are free market capitalists. So 
that wouldn't bring a much change but something that we've noticed in the trump regime itself has been that uh, they, there has been a significant cut in the social security net something that you mentioned about right how social security nets are needed in the capitalist system as well so we've noticed that um, you know the trump administration has been time and again cutting their allocation to the social security schemes um, so given that you know countries like india also are following a progressively capitalistic system in their approach um, how do you think social security and you know protection of people can be something that can be imbibed in the capitalist system well so um if you look at social security uh in, in terms of it, it does a lot of good absolutely you need it to take care of people obviously uh, people are not great investors in general the population does not believe in investing they don't save enough they don't invest enough so social security is essential i wouldn't take that away uh i would augment it slightly obviously uh in australia they have a thing called superannuation right um if i boil down the whole thing they just um it's social security with some modifications added on right you force people to invest you force them to start early right you give young people money uh cuz we know compounding right uh, if you start early and you start out with little amounts right it's that it's like being at the top of a mountain you let a, a small snowball right you roll it off and then you wait and it just grows exponentially as it rolls down the hill so you don't need a lot to start with right but you need something and you need to invest um so superannuation sort of takes social security and adds the element of compound interest to that so i think we can do something like that i don't think uh, uh, i'm not personally aware if he's cutting down social security i don't think that is the case uh however i don't think it's a good idea to get rid of it i think we can certainly augment it makes sense sir so now that the people like the younger generations at least have, are more aware than ever that there is this knowledge about even you know complex technical fields such as finance and technology in young and budding college students and school students as well and with societies like india itself accepting finance investment and you know um, and economics as considerable career options we we are seeing a rise in the number of people uh, in the number of people who are going into these fields as well so if i were to ask you what was what is your advice to these people to the younger generations who are looking at a future in investment in you know finance and um, in general as well you know the people who are not in these fields what can they do in order to build their financial acumen um so so it's a two part question so first is for people who are interested in finance want to pursue it as a career i would say um you have to be interested i think that's the only requirement finance is not very complicated do we make it to be that way um but it's not at the end of the day it's everything relating to money right providing money to people making money from money right those are the two big things in finance and so whether you work for venture capital right you work for private equity work for mutual fund hedge funds right or you work for alternative investment funds it's all the same thing right there's a lot of fluff you just take money and you invest it you know in some other place uh, that's uh, the crux of it so 
as long as uh, people are interested, they're passionate about it, I think this, uh, they should go forward. You know, with uh, India especially, I think is prime for, you know, explosion of finance over the next decade. So I think it's a great place to be. Uh, yeah, on to your second. Um, the thing is, I do not suggest that people invest in individual government stocks, right? In the sense that you shouldn't be picking if, you know, you should invest in Tata or you should be investing in Aisha Motors or whatever. You shouldn't be doing that because to an extent, it's like doing your own neurosurgery. Unless you have done it for a number of years, you're a professional in the field, uh, you shouldn't do it at all. You shouldn't think of investing as gambling. It's not gambling, right? You should have a three to four year investment horizon. You should think of yourself as a business owner. So if you own your local bakery, 5% of that, 5% of your you know, best auto car dealership in town, 5% of your laundromat, you know, and you, you wouldn't sell those businesses just because they did poorly for a month or so, right? You'd keep, you know, as long as fundamentally they're good businesses, you're gonna keep running them for years and years and years. Stocks are no different. Stocks are partial ownership of businesses. You take 5% ownership in 20 different high quality businesses, right? You should be good. The point is you have to think of yourself as a business owner when you're investing in stocks. That's what, what it is. You're getting a part of a business and you don't sell it just because somebody tells you it's going to go down. You don't buy more of it just because somebody tells you it's going to go up, right? So having the right mentality is essential. That being said, uh, going back to my previous uh, example, right? You want to start early. So if I would ask you a question, right? Who do you think has more money in his bank account, right? One who starts at 25, invests 5,000 rupees every month for 25 years, or the second person who starts out at 35, invests 20,000 rupees every month for 15 years. Assuming they both get 15% annually, what do you think? I would say the person who started off early because at 25, yeah. because as the period is something that will help him. Exactly. So you don't have to have a lot of money. You can start out with little money. I think the person starting out at 25, only investing 5,000 for 25 years at the age of 50, will have about 1.3 crore rupees. You know, you guys, don't take my word for it. Do the math yourself. And the second person would have 1.2, even though he is investing four times as much. But he started out late. So he missed out on those 10 years and they make a huge difference. Right? Now, I wouldn't suggest you only put five grand. Right? It depends on your financial position, you know, how much you can. Only invest as much as you wouldn't need. Never invest anything that you might need. You know, something might come up in the next six months like this crisis, right? You need to be in cash. So whatever you can afford, you know, to not touch is what you should put aside. That being said, start early, invest in index funds. Don't pick individual stocks or, or find somebody who's really good at investing, right? So that's hard, you know. Um, if you buy, you know, 5,000 rupees worth of Sensex or Nifty 50 every month, you just buy it and you don't look at it, you're gonna do well. If you 
try and time the market, try and figure out what's going to happen, how I can beat it, how I can get better than uh, 15% or try and get rich quick. You know, that's not what the stock market is for. Makes complete sense. So in today's episode, we understood about how the current economies are doing and how the global market has viewed Indian economies' response to the pandemic. We talked about how countries like Burkina Faso and low-income countries can deal with the pandemic. We've seen how healthcare systems need to revive and what can be done with respect to that and the U.S. elections. And at the end, we talked about how financial um, acumen can be built up in the youth as well. With this, we come to the end of this episode of Zibani. Um, Sir, we're extremely thankful and grateful that you could spare time from your extremely busy schedule and come here and, you know, give give your words of motivation and guidance to the younger generation. Um, with that... Thank you so much. Um, so this was a, this was the fourth episode of Zabani. If you liked the episode, you can go and follow the Statesmanship Program on Instagram. We'll be back next week with another episode on another unconventional topic, dealing with the same in an atypical manner. Thank you so much and stay tuned. 